everyone. Y'all can have a seat whenever you'd like. All right. Good morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Are we staying cool? If at any point I go down, it's because I chose to wear this sweater. So just keep an eye on me. <laughs> um, well, hey, uh, welcome. My name is Josh. Welcome to Resonate. If this is your first time, we're so thrilled you're here, and especially on a morning like this, uh, we're going to be talking through a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, mostly, we're here to really celebrate the people that make this engine move, uh, which are our volunteers and the people that serve. Uh, these chairs don't get set up. This communion doesn't get set up. Nothing gets set up without those people. We are a like kind of in-the-box, out-of-the-box church every single Sunday. So uh, it's just a huge thing uh, for, for us to be able to celebrate um, these folks. Uh, and I'll tell you what it takes to be a volunteer here. It's not hard. You have a community card on your chair right there. You can just simply write the word volunteer on there, put your name, put your email, drop it in this box, and myself or someone from our board will be in contact with you, and we'll get you plugged into a place that you're actually passionate about serving, uh, which doesn't have to be stressful or anything like that. So if you would like to do that, please pop that in. Um, but this morning, uh, besides just celebrating our volunteers, uh, we're going to talk about rest. Um, and I think it's an interesting time uh, in our year. We're like smack dab in the middle of July, uh, which means that a lot of us in the room have either been on vacation or a lot of us in the room really need a vacation, right? We're in a Venn diagram of vacation and holiday. Uh, and I think it's important. It, Resonate, we talk about rest almost every two months. Uh, and it's a dangerous topic. I think it's one that churches kind of avoid on a real level. Um, because when you start talking about rest, you start talking about this, this funky word called Sabbath. Um, you start talking about a dangerous ideal that kind of goes against our natural work habits. Um, and so that's hard for people to hear. And so a lot of times we avoid the truth of what Sabbath should be. Uh, and so this morning, I kind of want to get to the heart of what that is. Uh, and the reason we're doing this is because we're in the middle of a series called Christianese, which we're taking sort of abused <laughs> Christian phrases. Uh, we're giving them new light, providing fresh perspective on them, uh, maybe just sort of injecting a little bit of new life into these phrases. So last week, we, we focused on this crazy Christian word called idols, right? We sort of disarmed that idea and, and kind of put a new lens on that. And then today, what I want to do is disarm this idea of Sabbath. Um, because too often we can go two directions in the Christian faith. We can either take it far too seriously, which is I need to sit in one chair all day and do nothing. And if we're really kind of holding the biblical standards, that's unfortunately what Sabbath really is. It's just staying still for an entire day, right? So we can go that direction with it, which, guys, honestly, isn't bad. Do that once in a while. Um, but we can go that way with it, or we can just not take it seriously at all. We can just say that's a fun thing that's in that book, but that's not something I really adhere to. My schedule does not allow for me to do that. And there's the dangerous lie. If I'm not working constantly, then everything's going to fall apart. And the truth is, and the way that God's trying to set up your life is, is that that is simply not true. And in fact, things will fall apart if you just keep pedaling that bicycle and keep moving, keep going, keep going, keep going. Because once we keep going and don't stop, we will burn out. I think a better definition of Sabbath than just one day a week that we set aside for rest is habits in our life that we build in that will keep us from losing our life. Habits in our life that we build in that will keep us from losing our life. Because the truth of the matter is, if we are not resting, if we are not taking time to pause, whatever that looks like in our life, and we're going to get into it, it can look like a great many different things. But if we're not doing that, we're all going to face burnout. 
Uh, and that's something that our employers generally don't really care about, and that's something that our culture generally doesn't care about. It's just sort of a built-in thing. Like, that's just something you're going to get in life, right? But the Christian perspective, the Jesus way, is totally opposite of that. He says, no, 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 I don't want you to face that. I don't want you to remain enslaved. I don't want you in that grind. I would like to take you out and show you a better way to live. And I think all too often in churches and in Christianity, we make all of this about somewhere else. We act like the kingdom of God is not here and now, and so everything gets pushed to later, right? But when it gets pushed to later, especially with the rest stuff, we're not living our best lives here. And Jesus' earthly mission, when he's here, he's talking about this thing called the kingdom, and he's often saying, hey, this thing called the kingdom, it's at hand, which means it starts now, which means you're an eternal being that starts now and keeps going. You don't start once you die, right? You start right here, right now. So what can you do in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family to make this space look more like that kingdom, look more like heaven right here and right now? And what we're going to find out is a major, major part of that is rest. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. God, I'm thankful, um, I'm thankful that we get to take the time to just talk through uh, how to slow us down. Um, just a period in history uh, where things are so hectic, um, period in our work lives where things can be so hectic, I just pray that um, this message wouldn't just be a you know, fun um, kind of little dandy thing that we, we get through, but it would really take roots into our soul. That we would leave this space knowing that you're a God that loves us enough that you say, like, no, I want you to rest and I want you to be whole. I want you to be healed. I want you to be restored. Amen. So a big thing that I want to focus on this morning is I think there's a terrific difference between rest, which is what we usually think of when we think of Sabbath, uh, and restoration, which is God's actual sort of plan for Sabbath. So when we are taking a Sabbath, which means we are setting aside a designated time to say, I will not work. I will not accumulate right now. I will simply focus on what's going on and what's already happened in my life, and I will take a day out or a time out, whatever that looks like for you, to simply rest and reflect on it. And if we're doing that in a healthy way, we're going to find that we're not just rested afterwards, like a nice vacation to the beach, right? but we're actually restored. So when we go back into our lives, we're bringing more with us than when we came out of it. Right? We're actually coming back in, not just from vacation, not just from my ties, right? but, but with something deeper and restored so that when we encounter our work and our people and our communities, we're actually being a restorative agent in it. Right? When we bring ourselves back restored, other people are going to naturally get restored as well. It's just the same principle, and we're going to talk about this a lot this morning. It's just the same principle as a lot of other things. If you get cut off in your car, Right? If you're driving in your car, there's nothing more infuriating than someone speeding right in front of you, cutting you off, and almost hitting you. We get an enraged state, and it's right, like you could die, right? so there's a little bit of that, but we get in this enraged state like I will kill someone right? <laughs> because they simply passed in front of me in their car. And then what are you going to do? You're going to take that feeling, and that feeling might trickle into other things in your life or in your day that you really did not want it to affect. You might snap at a coworker. You might snap at a friend. You might do something weird just because you've been holding in this anger. right? All of that bad stuff, all of that anger, all of that resentment, it works the same as the restorative stuff if we let the restorative stuff do the tough work. But it's a lot more difficult to let that restorative stuff seep in. Richard Rohr talks about this a lot. Um, he follows all of these psychologists, and he said that one of the craziest things about our news cycle right now 
uh, is that it takes zero time. So your brain, you, you, when you get bad news, it takes zero time for your brain to imprint that bad boy into your memory, like right away. So that's why we love a clickbait title, right? We'll see something on the news and it looks like bad and we're like, oh, gimme, right? Because our brains just go like, I can fit that in instantly. Here's the crazy part. We can do that with good news too. But psychologists have found that it takes 15 seconds, 15 seconds of us just reflecting on it, thinking about it, sitting with it, for it to imprint the same way as bad news does instantly, right? So we have the tools, it just takes longer. See, restoration is not a fast food product. It's a slow burning thing. It slows you down. I, I honestly get very nervous whenever I talk about Sabbath um, because things tend to like manifest in my life as I'm talking about them. So if I'm talking about like joy, I tend to be pretty happy that week, right? Like I think God kind of inserts uh, stories into my life that makes this stuff interesting. Uh, but when I talk about rest, there is always a point that God goes, well, I'm going to slow you down to the point that you totally recognize what rest is. And I'm not kidding, guys. I have broken my shoulder one of the weeks I was going to talk about Sabbath. I busted my front teeth one of the weeks I talked about Sabbath. I got the flu one of the weeks that I talked about Sabbath. So I was like, I cross the fingers. Nothing's going to happen here. And sure enough, I got crazy dietary issues going on this week. And I truly believe it's only because I'm talking about Sabbath. So long story short, I'm only going to talk about like winning the lottery from now on. And I think that'll <laughs> manifest itself and we'll be OK. Um, but. It, like, truly, like, it's about slowing down. And the problem is, oftentimes, by the time I get to studying about rest and thinking about rest, I realize that in my own life, I have not rested properly. I have not truly, like, embodied this practice of Sabbath. And as a result, I think God really does go, like, cool, I'm going to punch the brakes on you rather, rather quickly. But that's just the way that it is. Like, it's healing. It's slow, right? Sabbath is slow, so it slows us down. There's a Japanese uh, philosopher that I'm not going to attempt to name. You can come up to me afterwards and I'll give you his name, but I am not going to be able to pronounce it. Um, but he talks about, he did a, a study on the average pace that people walk. So he figured out, uh, he wanted to kind of study the way Jesus moved, because Jesus was always just walking places, right? There's never an instance in scripture where you see Jesus sprinting somewhere, right? In fact, Dallas Willard says if you could describe Jesus in one word, it would be relaxed, Right? We follow a very relaxed God. Like This is a very calm, moving person. In fact, in ancient Jewish society, the slower you move, the more honorable you were. Even in the steps to the Jewish temple, as you walked up, the steps would be mismatched so that you would have to actually pay attention to where you were going, and it would intentionally slow you down because it was more honorable to reach the temple at a slow pace than it is a fast pace. How different that is in our daily world, right? We are always supposed to be right on time, even early, right? Rush there, get there. In Jesus' time, it was all about, no, you take your time. The honorable person takes it slow. They don't rush. They don't go fast. It's kind of the reason that the father in the prodigal son story is so radical is because he sprints. And here's a guy that's supposed to be being crazy honorable, and yet he sprints towards the son because there's an urgency there. But as Jesus is walking around, we just see him kind of meandering from town to town, walking, taking his time, and very casually just going like, okay, let's go to the other side. One of my favorite uh, parts in scripture is early in Mark. I think it's in Mark 3. Uh, and Jesus has just been absolutely crushing in ministry. Like, he's got tons of people there. This lake that he's talking at is just filled with human beings. Thousands of people have come from all over to hear him talk. And his response, so this is the, not the American response. The American response is, ooh, we should scale this. 
right? We could sell this. Like, we should get t-shirts. Jesus, do you want some t-shirts? Because there are thousands of people showing up here, and we could really make some money off of this, and we could really make this a big thing. And if you continue in this spot, man, this thing is going to go global. We're going to be, like, we're going to be set, right? The disciples are like, cha-ching. And Jesus simply looks at them, and in the calmest and coolest collected at the height of his ministry, he simply says, ah, I think it's time we go to the other side. Meaning, like, let's go to the other side where the other people live who have not heard this message, and I have no name there whatsoever. Right? He is not concerned about the rate of scale and growth and all that. He's concerned about, "Mm, I think I need to get to the people who need to hear this the most. I think it's time to move to the other side, just very casually, very slowly. Right? And they don't have anything they can get to the other side in very quickly. It's a boat. It's scary. But they're just like, yeah, let's go to the other side. So this philosopher starts studying the way that Jesus would move, and then he starts thinking, like, well, what's the average pace of a human being? So an average, right, is going to be like you're going to meet in the middle somewhere, so there's going to be people way faster than this, and there's going to be people way slower than this. But he, he figured out that about the average pace of a human being is about five miles an hour. I'm sorry, three miles an hour. Five miles an hour is a pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> spiffy pace. Three miles an hour. Uh, and, and one of his friends, as he was doing this study, says, that's far too slow. And he walked about five miles an hour. <laughs> he said, I walk fast everywhere, right? That's far too slow. Jesus wouldn't have walked that fast. He would have been on purpose. And then Jesus said, like, no, if Jesus was walking, he would have walked at the pace of the people who needed the healing. The people who were crying out for him, he would have been walking at a speed that he would have heard them cry out. And he could have stopped. And he could have paid attention to them. And he could have been with them. And so his grand sort of takeaway from all of that is if you're walking faster than that, if you're moving through life, if you're rushing, who are you following? Because there's a chance that you could have sprinted right by the very person you're supposed to be following. And we do that, we're also sprinting past all of those other people that Jesus so willingly wanted to help. We can't follow something that we're outpacing, right? And it's really difficult to outpace God. <laughs> Once we do that, we're, we're something called lost. We're not like skipping to the end of the line. What we're doing is we're meandering in the wrong direction, right? So what he said is like, if that's the case, then love might have a speed, and that speed might be three miles an hour. That at the slow pace, we can see more, we can pay attention to more, and we can love more deeply. And this seeps into almost everything Jesus does. When Jesus talks about this thing called the, well, he doesn't talk about the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a Sermon on the Mount. But as he's talking about the kingdom and all this good news for all these people, he focuses on worry and anxiety a ton. And in fact, as scholars look at that sermon, which is like just the magnum opus of all Jesus' statements, it's kind of the biggest chunk of red letters we have in the Bible, that a lot of them come to the conclusion that what Jesus' end goal was for that sermon was not to convince you all to become Christians uh, and to go to churches and to, to be good people, the, the real core of that message was an anti-anxiety message. Just basically saying, like, what are you so worried about? Stop spinning your wheels on all this worry. And guys, if we think we're worried today, and we do carry a tremendous amount of worry. I'm not discounting what we're doing. But we have cars that can move like 60 miles an hour and stuff. These people did not have medical insurance, right? <laughs> they did not have the things that are available to us today. 
And in fact, in that day, they were triple taxed. So that meant that basically, if you were being a pious religious person in that day, you would pay three different taxes. One would be to the Roman government, which was a huge tax. The other one would be to the high priest in the temple, the temple tax. And the other one would be to your local government. That's three different taxes. And one person would show up from each of those different camps. And they would come and oftentimes abuse that system and take even more. So what it resulted in is substantiating farming, which meant that these people literally only had about enough to live on each and every day. And the remarkable thing is Jesus doesn't rally against that. He doesn't say that's wrong. He doesn't say that's crazy. What he says is that is actually enough. That's enough. And he says this remarkable thing about, like, why are you worried? Like, think about the flowers in the field and the birds in the sky. Like, are they not clothed even better than, than, than the, the kings or a bride on her wedding day? And I looked that up because I was really curious about the flower. They, in a lot of translations, they say it's a lily. And I was like, huh, the lilies of the field. Why would it be lily? And so I was like, maybe that's just a weird English translation that we threw in there. Maybe he's talking about something else. But actually, if you go back to the Greek, he's really naming like a lily, a lily. And what's even more fun, I went on a deep dive on lilies this week. Um, What's really fascinating about a lily is that a lily takes about 40 days to grow before it even blooms once. And then once it blooms, it only lasts three days. And then it starts the process over. So you have a plant, in, in uh, the oriental lily, which is the longest form lily, it takes 90 days to grow before it blooms for just three days. 90 days to grow, right? So the pace of this stuff, what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, stop trying to rush through your life. You're going to miss it. It is not about the bloom moments. Those will come and go. Your big moments, your long form moments are going to be the lily moments. They're going to be those 40 to 90 days, right? It's the difference between the peak and the valley. You can't stay on the peak that long. It's too small, right? The valley is where we're going to spend the vast majority of our lives. And if you're from the valley today, it's probably like 100 degrees there. I'm so sorry. But the valley is where we're going to spend the vast majority of our lives, not the peaks. So what Jesus is trying to prepare us for is, hey, I'm going to give you some tools in your life so that you can understand that when you're in that pause section, when you're in that painful growth section, that that's actually exactly where I want you to be, and I want you to learn to rest in it. I want you to learn to rest. And this goes back even further. It's not just Jesus that talks about this. By the time Jesus gets around, he's dealing with an entirely different system, but the first time God interacts with these people, these Israelites, this new nation, he actually has to take them out of slavery and into freedom. And the first thing he has to teach them is, how do you break out of a society, a culture, a, a, a lifestyle that is constantly work-related? Right? If you're a slave in Egypt, your number one job was to build bricks. Right? You would either be building the bricks or you would be using the bricks to build things. And it's, at this point in history, it's no, like the, the Egyptians literally would run out of stuff for these slaves to build, and so they would just create random structures. That's why we see like, some random stuff in Egypt. Like, they're just like, I don't know, like, they've got more bricks. Like, go build a structure over there. Like, you're not going to stop working. You're going to keep working, and you're going to keep making bricks, and you're going to keep going, and you're going to keep going. So this is the lifestyle for generations, generations that this nation had lived under. We wake up in the morning, we make bricks. We go to sleep, we wake up in the morning, we make bricks. We make bricks, we make bricks, that's who we are, that's what we do, we make bricks, and if we don't make the total number of bricks that are required of us, we get hurt. So generations of guilt and shame about how much you're producing, how much you're scaling, all of that measurement stuff, 
becomes manifest in this society. And the first thing God has to do is create a list of 10 rules to say, like, no, here's a better way to live your life. And in those 10 rules is you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's right up there with do not murder. <laughs> he puts it on the same thing. It, God takes rest immensely seriously. And actually, that rest is the antithesis of slavery. It's saying now you are not enslaved. You are free. And what freedom means is you have the freedom to rest. You have the freedom to take a day off. And what a remarkable thing that he literally had to force it in there, right? He had to literally say, like, no, this is a commandment. It's a law. You must rest because these people needed that so badly. And guys, that has not changed. We need that so badly, too. We are obsessed as a culture with our bricks. Our bricks look much differently, but we measure them in the same way, right? How much have I produced? How much have I scaled? How big have I built something? Look at how I can measure, right? We love bricks because they are a form of measurement, they're a form of scale, and we can point to them and say, look at how much I've done, right? And the problem with taking a day off is we don't get to add to that pile of bricks in any kind of way in our life, and that hurts us because we think that we still need to be adding to it. And the truth is, God is like, no, you are done with your bricks. You need to take a break because the health of your soul cannot be measured in scale of bricks, right? As Americans, we believe in scale in everything, every aspect of our lives, right? If we're not growing, then we're dying. If our business isn't growing, it's dying. If our bank account isn't growing, it's dying. If something isn't scaling and it's showing active growth, we look at it totally negatively and say it's not going to survive. And yet, we don't take that same principle and turn it back into our souls. And say, how is your soul growing? Exactly. <laughs> How's your soul growing? How are you actually expanding in your heart? Both of you. How are you growing, right? Not what are you building in your external life, but how are you actually caring for what's in here? Because that same principle really does matter in your personal life, just as it does in your business or your external life, right? It's just that we have to measure differently. You can't measure your soul in your bricks. You have to actually measure your soul in not what you're scaling, but what you're resting in. Not what you're scaling in, but what you're resting in. What are you resting in? That's your measurement for how you're going to grow in your spiritual life. What do you trust in? What do you actually trust enough that I will rest, I will lay here, I will be calm in this place? That's a really difficult thing to pin down, right? Because we're really, it's really difficult to rest in something and to actually trust something enough that we want to rest. There's not a single story in all of scripture about scaling something other than your soul besides one story and it's called the Tower of Babel, and it does not end well for them. <laughs> so let's pick up here. This is like physical scaling, and this is what God does as people start going, no, this is the point. We need to scale this big, massive project. Um, sometimes this is called the origin of languages and cultures. All people on the earth had one language. This is in Genesis, so we're in Genesis 11. So we've gone through um, a couple of major stories here, and here we find humanity for the first time kind of putting down roots and civilization, right? Instead of just like this tribal stuff, we're all over the place, we're all going to come together and we're going to create not just sort of like rural countryside living, but we're going to create a city. 
And what's really interesting about cities in that time, they're not like the cities that we have. So people would very rarely live within the city walls. Cities were meant for businesses. Cities were meant for like public buildings. They were meant for courts. They were meant for temples. That was where you went to go be with other people, but everyone would kind of withdraw from the city at night, and they would be with their families. All right, so this is the first kind of instance that we see this. Um, the same words. Uh, when they traveled east, and then this is fascinating, in biblical culture, we have what's called a north-oriented map. So if you look at any map on your phone, wherever, it's always going to orient north, right? So when you click, it's true north. Well, that's not the only way to view a map. <laughs> so if you flip it, in the ancient society, east was true north for them. East was up. So in, in every biblical thing that you read where you see the word east, it means they're moving forward. It means there's progress being made. We're moving forward. Right? And west is actually a, a term for moving backward. So they're moving forward. They're putting down roots. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. They said, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed all over the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, uh, there is now one people, and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do. And now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language uh, so there will be their language there so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord uh, dispersed them from their, all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is Babel, because their Lord mixed up the languages of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the earth. So upon first sort of cursory reading, this sounds like sort of a jerk move on God's behalf, <laughs> right? Look at all the good stuff we have in this story. We've got unity for the first time. We've got people speaking a common language. Like, we're all going to come together. We're going to build this big thing. It's going to be ours, and we are going to put down roots here. What's fascinating about that is God does not come down, and oftentimes we talk about this story like he knocks down the tower, right? That's actually the VeggieTales version of the story. God comes down and knocks down the tower. There's no knocking down of the tower. The tower stays. The tower stays. The city stays. What God reorients and what God tries to shift is not the stuff that they built. It was the priorities that they had. It's to say, like, your priorities are all out of whack. You're, you're measuring in the wrong way. You're scaling with bricks and not with your hearts anymore. And as soon as you do that, what are they doing? Let's make bricks. What happens to a society that gets really strong and then they figure out, oh, we don't want to make the bricks anymore. All of a sudden, you could have the same situation that the Israelites are in, and now this, this nation that's supposed to exemplify what God is could become a nation that potentially owns human beings. So God says, no, that is not the priority here. You need to learn to scale and measure in what's right here between you people and not this huge city that you're scaling, right? He's, he's reorienting the idea of what it means to scale. And that, that has to be a good thing for us, right? What, what this means is, like, it doesn't mean that you need to give up. It doesn't mean we give up the tower. The tower is still there. So our external lives are important, and the stuff that you build is not like, I'm not saying like wipe it all out and just go join a hippie commune and, and, and go live out your days. That's not the biblical way of life either. But what it's saying is, hey, what's your first priority, right? 
Is it to build and scale this, or, or is it joy? Sabbath is a day that's supposed to remind us that even if the work isn't done, we can still have joy. That scale isn't the number one priority in your life. It's not the one number one thing that God wants for you, but joy is, right? I want you to take joy even if the work isn't done. I want you to take joy in what's going on. And joy is so difficult for us to hold on to, again, because we have to sit with it longer, right? We have to look up. We have to actually pay attention for joy to enter the equation. There's an amazing story that the rabbis used to tell. It's called a midrash. So basically, it's a, uh, it's a fun story and a riff off of scripture, but they use sort of biblical stories and insert other characters in them. And they all have like really cool uh, meanings and morals. And um, this one's called uh, Reuben and Shuben, which is fantastic because they rhyme. And I just love that. We've got Reuben and Shuben. Reuben and Shuben are two of the Israelites who've just been freed uh, from slavery in Egypt. And this amazing thing has happened where God has split the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, all of Israel is walking through the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army approaches. But these two, Reuben and Shuben, who have always been the most cantankerous, complaining, just sort of like whiny guys in the bunch, and have just become friends based on their whining. You know these people, right? They're the people that just, they, they get together and all they talk about is negative stuff, and somehow they fuel each other with that. So this is Reuben and Shuben. They're just negative Nancys going back and forth. And they're walking through the Red Sea, and as they're walking through, all they're able to do is stare down at the ground and complain, because goodness, isn't this muddy, <laughs> right? It's getting all over my sandals, and then Reuben goes, yeah, it's getting all over my sandals, and then Shuben goes, this is the same kind of mud we'd have to build bricks with in Egypt. What are we even doing here? And all the while, they're just staring at their feet, staring at the mud, refusing to see the walls of water beside them and the celebration that comes at the end. Because when we live in that negativity, we choose not to see the miracle. For Reuben and Shuben, that negativity, that, that anti-joy, that stopped them from truly experiencing what God wanted for them, which was freedom and rest and reconciliation and redemption and getting you the heck out of Dodge, right? But for them, they could not see that because they tricked themselves out of the miracle, they tricked themselves by being negative to each other because that's the mode that they were in, in slavery. That's the mode that felt comfortable, right? I know this. I know Shubin, I know Reuben, and this is our dynamic, this is our relationship, this is how we talk. But it had to change and it couldn't for them and so they tricked themselves out of the miracle and that's the human flaw in all of us guys is we have that capacity to be tricks out of miracles, to be deceived out of wonder to believe the lie that everything is negative and broken and awful when it's not, right? I think, though, just like we said about the, the positive being just as powerful as the negative, I think that that little intrinsic ability in us to be tricked is actually something God built in there on purpose because I think you can use it in a different way. Just the same powers that be that cause Reuben and Shubin to be tricked out of the miracle, I think we can trick ourselves into the miracle. I think we have the power to convince ourselves that these things are there just as much as we have the power to convince ourselves that that negative stuff is real, right? And all it takes is a flip of perspective. All it takes is a flip. There's an awesome story about a sales uh, executive who's just getting started. Uh, he graduated from like an Ivy League school. He's like the top in his class. Uh, and he's going out for interviews. And he's kind of just got this reputation already that this guy, this guy's good. We, we need to hire him. 
Um, but a guy named, we'll call him Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith is an old, cranky ad executive, uh, and he doesn't believe that this new young guy can come in and do his job as well as he can, even though his whole firm wants to hire him. So he brings him in for one last final round of interviews, uh, and he hands him a cigar, because it's probably the 1960s, I don't know. Hands him a cigar, uh, and they're there, and they both light up the cigar, and very smirkly, Mr. Smith just says to him, hey, I've heard you're the best in the business. Uh, and the young man just kind of thanks him humbly and says thank you and uh, moving on. Uh, and he says, well, I'm not going to give you this job. I'm not going to give you this job unless you can convince me to buy this water bottle. And he just rolls a water bottle right across the desk for $50 by the end of 10 minutes. And he starts a timer, and he says, go. And so the young man, very brilliantly, just calmly waits, waits about five minutes. Mr. Smith's kind of going, what the heck is going on here? And then the young man just sort of walks over to the corner of the office, picks up a wastebasket that's filled with paper, comes over, drops his cigar in the wastebasket. The paper goes up in flames. He lets it sit on the desk for about two minutes, right at the end, right up to the buzzer. And then he calmly says to Mr. Smith, would you like to buy this jug of water for $50? <laughs> and Mr. Smith says, yes, right? It's just a perspective switch, right? He didn't have to convince him. He didn't have to do it. He just had to take the current situation and just move one little element. And all of the sudden, Wonder was working on his behalf and not Mr. Smith's, right? We love a good flip around. We love a good trick. And they can work out for us. We, I, I, I think that in our Sabbath lives, like we have to actually trick ourselves into really getting into it. I have to have like, like a good couple hours off before I actually feel like I'm resting or I'm doing anything. There's, a, there's sort of a downwind period, right? It's also the same with me when I write. I need like 30 minutes of typing before I feel like, oh, okay, I'm doing this, right? Or when you run and you run and like you're, you're running and at first you're miserable and then like 30 minutes in you're like, oh my gosh, okay, I can do this, right? You need sort of a, a ramp up period to trick yourself into going like, oh, like, okay, I can do this. And guys, we're inherently tricked. Like, did you know that like good weather is it, like literally stats have shown that if it's, it's sunny outside, you're more likely to eat healthy, right? You're, we are beautiful and made in the image of God, but you are also just a monkey with a super brain, right? We, we can get tricked very, very, very easily, right? There's an NPR study on judges in which they, they looked at how they get handed out verdicts within the day, and it turns out that you are twice as likely to get a guilty verdict in the morning before the judge has eaten lunch. If the judge is eating lunch, all of a sudden, your uh, chances of getting an innocent verdict are much, much higher, right? We're intrinsically able to get tricked, and I think we can use this for good and not just for bad, right? And so what if we use Sabbath as a way to trick ourselves into good rest, right? That even if the work is not done, if there's still stuff on that calendar, if there's still stuff on that to-do list, that we act as though it has, right? That we fake it till we make it. Because in all honesty, in our American culture, it's going to take some acting ability to be able to rest completely in our lives, right? That's the idea. And God built that in all sorts of ways in the Ten Commandments, but the main one is Sabbath, just saying, hey, I need you to take literally a day out of your week and just rest. And the good news is the work does not have to be done for you to do that. If you look at the creation narrative, the first seven days, God creates everything and he says it is good, but then we have another creation account in which Eve is created, and that doesn't happen in the first seven days. God leaves something for the next week. He says it doesn't all have to get done in a rush right here, 
right now. Just calm down, slow down, and move in that way. Right? But when we stop working just for ourselves, when we stop working just for our own gain, for our own bricks, that's when we're actually letting God work on behalf of us and in us and inside of us. And the good news about Jesus is he gets in trouble all over the scriptures for breaking the Sabbath law because he heals people on the Sabbath, which was technically work. But the really great news about that is not that he just broke a law, but that we have a God that works for us on the days that we're not supposed to be working. That we have a God that actually wants to work within our souls when we take a step back, take a break, and just say, I'm pausing whether that work is done or not. I'm going to choose to let something bigger than myself take over. So guys, my prayer for you for the rest of this summer and into the fall is that you would build a rhythm into your life in which you will not lose your life. That you would in intentionally set time aside. That you would say, no, this is for me and this is for God. And it's enough. And it doesn't have to be complete. It's enough for now. And you have full permission to do that. And in fact, it's not just permission. It's a commandment. Let's pray together. God, I'm just so thankful for, for rest. Um, for the ability to, to trick ourselves into actually uh, real physical rest, emotional rest, spiritual rest. Um, and that you've built in structures that that truly allow us to do that. So I pray uh, over the next couple weeks for us, I pray that we would all be able to find some rhythm, whether that's an hour or a day or anything in between, so that you would truly let us take that seriously. Amen.